And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. On the Skype line with us today is Dr. Peter Hammond, founder and director of Frontline Fellowship. And Peter, it's an honor to talk with you today. Thank you so much, Dan. We praise God for Redeemer Broadcasting. No, before we open the mic, you mentioned that you've lost a couple of friends, and one of those is a man by the name of Brother Andrew. And uh, to some of our listeners, that name may be familiar. So could you give us a little bit of a picture of Brother Andrew and what he did and why that's such an important figure uh, in, in the world, really? Yes, he's, of course, very well known in Eastern Europe as Brother Andrew. We in the West might know him more by the title God Smuggler, the title of the book he published in 1967, or rather the Sherrills uh, wrote on him. His real name is Andrew van der Beel, and uh, Andrew van der Beel passed into eternity on the 27th of September 2022 at age 94, and he traveled the world. He went to 125 countries. But I think this will certainly be his most important and exciting journey as he enters into <laughs> eternity. Brother Andrew is a Dutch Christian missionary. He dedicated his life to smuggling Bibles to persecute Christians behind the Iron Curtain, mostly in Eastern Europe. Well, that's really significant. And it is so, so touching, I think, to you because you also uh, have worked in smuggling Bibles, right? Yes, I have. Um, and in fact, I got to do quite a few projects with him. And uh, wow. But my wife had a far stronger connection to Brother Andrew. And he was a, Brother Andrew was a frequent guest in the Bathman home in Austria and Gruskemein, just outside of Salzburg. Uh, their home, Ros- the Rosenhof, was something of a missionary guest house for missionaries traveling behind the Iron Curtain or returning from missions to Eastern Europe. And so Lenora grew up with giants of the faith like Brother Andrew and Richard Von Brunt, George Verver on the other side of the table and and sometimes um, taking a bed. She is sometimes um, rushed out of her bed in the middle of the night to um, for another traveler coming past, but sometimes with Brother Andrew and uh, she is um, put on the couch in the living room to give her room <laughs> to uh, one or the other uh, passers by. And she said, what a privilege it was to grow up hearing stories um, and reports and discussions and plans and prayers between her dad, Bill Bathman, who dedicated 67 years of his life ministering mm. uh, to mostly persecuted churches, a lot of it behind the Iron Curtain. And uh, uh, Bill Bathman, my father-in-law and brother Andrew, undertook a lot of missions behind the Iron Curtain. And uh, I heard about some of that when I traveled with Bill Bathman throughout Eastern Europe. He would recount answers to prayer and testimonies, which had occurred at Every town and village and church and checkpoint and roadblock. <laughs> there was always some. So I traveled to 27 countries with Bill Bathman. And um, I've never traveled with anyone as many countries I have with Bill Bathman. And I learned a lot about uh, what um, um, happened there and uh, from the persecuted church, uh, some of which included Brother Andrew. It's an amazing thing. Um, I, I just, the thought just occurred to me that we may have a, a young listener today and here we are uh, talking about the Iron Curtain. And you know what? It might even be foreign to a young listener. How would you describe what the Iron Curtain is? The Iron Curtain was a massive series of barricades sealing off 
the captive nations of Eastern Europe from the free nations of Western Europe. So stretching from Stettin in the north down to Trieste in the south, from the Baltic through to the Adriatic seas, there was the most unbelievable obstacle course ever devised by men. Uh, you know, forget about the Great Wall of China and Hadrian's Wall. This, this was far more deadly and more formidable. Uh, barbed wire fences, electric fences, thousands of kilometers of electric fences, um, uh, landmine fields, uh, anti-vehicle um, barricades, uh, guard towers every two kilometers at least, um, uh, uh, dog runs where dogmans and other dogs uh, were uh, given free reign between, um, some areas which they swept the ground completely so that you could see if the person, if anyone had stepped in it, uh, so it would regularly be absolutely flat soil, and uh, automatic um, weapons that if you tripwire, then you know flares could go up, machine guns could open fire, wow. just unbelievable, so the Iron Curtain probably most people know about the Berlin Wall, where the city of Berlin was divided in half, and literally the western sector was uh, surrounded by about 260 kilometers of solid wall with barbed wire and spikes and landmines and uh, trip wires and killer dogs and machine gun towers and searchlights and you just motion sensor equipment. It's just phenomenal. And this wasn't just for show. This was to keep people captive. Now, uh, believe it or not, Millions of people still escaped across this formidable obstacle course, and many were killed uh, doing so. So, uh, of course, hundreds of thousands were arrested attempting unsuccessfully to escape across the borders from Eastern Europe. And, of course, this affected people from East Germany and Czechoslovakia and Hungary and Yugoslavia and Romania, Poland, all the way through um, Bulgaria, Albania. Uh, these were the captive nations. These were part of the Warsaw Pact. They were under the Soviet Union. They were occupied by Soviet troops, uh, communist troops from, from communist-controlled, what they then called the Union of the Soviet Socialist Republics, or USSR, uh, which um, have now broken into 15 different countries, including Russia and Ukraine. But um, uh, during from 1945, the end of the Second World War, till 1989, this was the biggest obstacle course on earth. And it was an ugly scar right across the center of Europe. And... Uh, people were literally shot in the back by their own police or army for attempting to escape from the socialist utopia to the West. And yes. if you go into Berlin today, you'll see um, crosses and memorials to people like Peter Fetcher, an 18-year-old to the day after his birthday was shot dead, shot in the back uh, by the Volkspolizei or Vopos of uh, East Germany, the communist uh, forces who who were there to keep secure the border and prevent people from escaping. The Volkspolizei means the people's police. <laughs> and they shot this man dead, and he's just one of thousands who were murdered, trying to escape from uh, Eastern Europe into Western Europe. Uh, shot in the back for trying to go from East Berlin to West Berlin. So that just epitomizes uh, what the Iron Curtain was. And so it took a lot of courage to go behind the Iron Curtain yes. to smuggle Bibles and to go and preach to the underground churches in countries where a lot of that activity was completely illegal. Yeah, people are trying to get out of there, and here are a few, a handful of missionaries trying to get in in order to smuggle Bibles so that people have the Word of God uh, in their own tongue, I would assume. Yes, so uh, just just to give one uh, very intriguing example, 
Um, when I first went with uh, Bill Bathman into Czechoslovakia, I mean, the Berlin Wall was still up. In fact, it took us five hours not to get into the country. They blocked us because um, uh, they flagged Bill Bathman as somebody who they had arrested before. <laughs> and so we spent five hours unsuccessfully at the border post. And then when we couldn't get in there, we redirected and went to Yugoslavia and then Bulgaria and Romania. But um, Bill Bathman uh, related how in 1968, August 1968, the Soviets invaded Czechoslovakia. So Czechoslovakia attempted, now the Communist Party was the only party allowed in, in the communist world in Eastern Europe, uh, but the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia attempted in 1968 what they called the Prague Spring. And Alexander Dubček, the, the premier or the Communist Party leader, there was attempting communism with a human face. Well, uh, apparently... Uh, Brezhnev was having none of that, and so he mobilized mm -hmm. the Warsaw Pact. And in one day, half a million troops crossed the border in an invasion of Czechoslovakia. By the end of the week, there was half a million communist forces invading and occupying and crushing Czechoslovakia for attempting to have communism with a human face. It was apparently too much freedom they thought would infect all the rest of the Warsaw Pact wow. Eastern Europe countries. And so my father-in-law, Bill Bathman, picked up the phone, phoned Brother Andrew, who's in the Netherlands, and said, as Russians are coming towards us, we should seize this opportunity to go into this strife-torn country to distribute <laughs> Russian New Testaments to the soldiers. And so they agreed to meet in Winslow Square, Prague. Well, these were about the only vehicles going into Czechoslovakia. Columns of refugees were pouring out of the country, fleeing in the opposite direction out of the country. And when they got to the border... Uh, they had to find a remote border because several border posts had already been seized by the Russians and had to keep going around. They went several hundred kilometers out of the way, starting in Austria and ended up somewhere in Germany, crossing some remote border post, which the Russian force hadn't yet got to. And as they were crossing me, the border guard on the Czech side said, don't you know what's going on in our country? And they said, we know that Goliath has come to your country, but we're on the side of David. And with tears in his eyes, the Czech border guard said, aren't you afraid? And they said, we have many friends in Czechoslovakia. Friends need to identify in times like this. And they said it was the quickest border crossing ever. The man just stamped his passports, waved them in, and off they went. Now, as they got into Prague, into Winslow Square, they were there before the Russians got there. And as the Soviet tanks came into Winslow Square, Bill Bethlen described how they literally crushed cars, trucks, buses, they shaved deliberately. These tanks would come as T-62s and just shave the sides of cars, just absolutely uh, cutting sides of vehicles off of these massive 60-ton tanks. Wow. And in some cases, deliberately running past columns, holding up a building or um, the veranda area of something of some building, just knock it down, just, just causing destruction. Well, there's a lot of hostility, a lot of shouting and anger and clenched fists, and people were putting up all kinds of signs like, the Moscow Circus is in town. Please do not feed or irritate the bear. And uh, there was, um, of course, other things like Russians get out. And uh, so there was many different, um, uh, uh, different slogans about Judas and betrayal and so on. Well, Bill Bathman and Brother Andrew were probably the only people smiling at the Russians uh, that day and mm. for the next weeks. They walked into Winslow Square, they climbed onto the tanks and handed Russian New Testaments to the invaders. <laughs> and um, they, these these were from Slavic Gospel Association, so they were black 
and New Testaments. I've distributed many of these over the years. Slavic Gospel Association printed these Bibles um, by the hundreds of thousands, and there were um, there were black covers, no writing, no title on it, and um, so that they could easily conceal. It wouldn't be obvious that it's a Bible, and um, uh, nice and compact that you could fit in your pocket and so on. So it was ideal to give to people in countries where it's not legal, and uh, so they were literally handing to the invaders these and the Russians were so grateful and they were they were smiling and joyful to see somebody who would <laughs> smile and be gracious and greet them uh, with, with the Russian greetings and um, uh, they they had such an opportunity of ministering there because the Russians were actually quite shocked they had been told that to come and save the communist comrades and Czechoslovakia and they got there and they just found that people were abusing them and being angry and they weren't actually as welcome and they weren't actually coming on a rescue mission as they were lied to by the commissars. So it was it was a very fruitful time of ministry, but that's just one example of many of how um, people with the initiative and the courage of Bill Bath and Brother Andrew were able to seize the opportunity and and to take Bibles into countries where Bibles were illegal. Yes. Well, today we're talking with Dr. Peter Hammond, uh, founder and director of Frontline Fellowship. He has a lot of experience in smuggling Bibles himself, and uh, today we're talking about God's smuggler, quote-unquote, Brother Andrew, and um, uh, Peter, you knew him, your wife knew him, and uh, is there anything that stands about stands out in your mind about Brother Andrew in, in terms of how he acted? Um, any Anything that characterized him? Yes, lots, I would say. I mean, for example, the very first time I ever met Brother Andrew, I was just 19 years old. It was June 1979. Uh, I was at the headquarters of Hospital Christian Fellowship, or HCF, in Kempton Park in Transvaal of South Africa. Uh, the, the first mission that I came across, the first missionary who spoke in my church, in the year after I was converted, was Francis Grimm, the founder of Hospital Christian Fellowship. So I rushed forward and joined his mission. And because I'd come from neighboring Rhodesia, I wasn't due for a call up the moment I left um, high school. Um, and so I basically had a year uh, before my call up came, and I used it for missions. And so I joined HCF. And uh, so about a week before I had to go in my military service, there I was at Hospital Christian Fellowship, and who should come and take devotions? Brother Andrew. And Brother Andrew is part of the board of HCF. There's a story behind that too. He was converted to Christ after he was severely wounded um, in a conflict when he was a soldier in the Dutch army fighting in the Dutch East Indies, which uh-huh. today is Indonesia. And uh, he was told he'd never walk again, and he's very bitter, and he's in the hospital, he's angry. He's actually quite a brutal soldier before uh, he was um, uh, wounded and, and converted. Yes. Uh, he he used to wear a yellow straw hat and uh, almost daring the enemy to shoot him. He, had, he often wouldn't die for cover. He'd be, you know, very much like daring the others, you know, kill me if you can. Hmm. And uh, uh, he he wrote and spoke about, uh, you know, atrocities he committed and uh, uh, the, the savagery uh, with which his unit played. He was a commando uh, fighting against communists who were brutal as well, but... Um, uh, sadly, um, uh, he had things that, that gave him nightmares later that, that sure. he was involved in. And uh, here he was bitter. He's a young boy, and he's a young man. He's, he's now crippled for life. And a very gracious Christian nurse pointed him to Christ and encouraged him to, to read the Bible and asked him if he had a Bible. Actually, he did. And so 
uh, delving through to the bottom of his um, backpack, there was a Bible he had never read, but which his mother had given him when he had set out to war. And he read through the whole Bible while in recuperation hospital. And God healed him. <laughs> and, uh, you know, well. he was told he'd never walk again without a cane. And uh, he had a radical conversion and uh, was called to missions and ended up, um, first of all, training with WIC, Worldwide Evangelization Crusade in, in uh, Scotland. And uh, uh, he learned how to be a faith missionary and uh, through a whole series of events, ended up being a Bible smuggler into Eastern Europe. But I'm jumping ahead of myself. So the first time I met him, he's he's the guest speaker. He's speaking at devotions at HGF. And uh, he pointed out that while communist governments may close down churches, it's a whole lot harder for them to close down hospitals. Ah, yes. That's why he supported the work of Francis Grimm. And he's on the board of HGF, evangelizing and training doctors and nurses to be ongoing daily witnesses to patients and other medical personnel because more people pass through the hospitals of the world than through its churches. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he had been converted in hospital. And he says, when you're in hospital, you're pointing the right direction. God's got your attention. <laughs> and then Brother Andrew said, God has placed you, South Africans, at the foot of Africa to take the gospel of Christ throughout Africa. The continent of Africa is the special missionary responsibility of the church in South Africa. You have the manpower. You have the materials to fulfill the Great Commission throughout Africa. Amen. And so he gave a great uh, challenging message and it was inspiring to be there. But a very intense man. Well, during his message at these devotions, he also mentioned the spectacular growth of the unregistered church movement in communist China. There's a desperate need for Bibles in China. And the communist government of China only allowed a very small number of an old translation, which the younger people didn't understand because uh, the communists had completely changed the language, like yes. you speak in Orwell's 1904. And this could only be sold to members of the registered, government-controlled three self-churches. Now, if you wanted to purchase a Bible in China at that time, you need to apply and register very much like if you were seeking a firearm license from the state, oh uh, which is not easy in those sort of countries. So, of course, unregistered, illegal, underground church members could not meet the requirements of the state and they would not go through the process as it would endanger their lives That's and their right. liberty. So, so there's no alternative. Millions of Bibles would have to be smuggled to read China. Is that millions? Are there Christians in China? Oh yeah, and he said tens of millions, <laughs> possibly 60 million and we're like, what? We thought all the Christians had been exterminated during the Cultural Revolution under yes, Mao Zedong. Yes, yes. But apparently there were more Christians than ever before, tenfold of what had been there before. So Open Doors was preparing for its biggest Bible smuggling operation ever, a million Bibles to be smuggled into Red China. He called it Project Pearl. Well, I would hear when I came out of the army two years later, Brother Andrew was again a guest speaker, and he was able to speak about the success of Operation Pearl, with only a few thousand Bibles being intercepted, but, but most of the million getting through. Well, after devotions, Francis Grimm introduced me to God's smuggler, and he said, this young man is about to be called up for his national service with the South African Army. <laughs> so Brother Andrew fixed his piercing blue eyes on me and with great intensity admonished me. Young man, when God says duck, duck. Do not ask when or why, just duck, or a bullet will go where your head was. <laughs> well, uh, that was what he said to me, eyeball to eyeball. Well, through the coming months and years, I often had cause to remember this admonition from Brother Andrew and we met on a number of occasions, and we exchanged correspondence through the years, right up to last year. And uh, Brother Andrew, of course, had fought in the military in the very vicious 
jungle war in Dutch East Indies. So mm. um, he knew what he was talking about. And so yes. uh, that was just the first time I met Brother Andrew. But uh, it was also extraordinary when I came out of the army just two years later. Uh, and he gave us, first of all, what had happened with uh, Operation Pearl and the successful uh, smuggling miles. He uh, unveiled a new scheme. I mean, I really thought Operation Pearl was a bit hair-brained. <laughs> I mean, how are you going to smuggle a million Bibles into China in one go? But uh, he then said, we are going to launch the seven-year Jericho pre-march to bring down the Iron Curtain and to uh, collapse the Soviet Union, oh open up Eastern Europe and Russia to the gospel. I mean, I sat there stunned. I don't know what the other people thought, but <laughs> I thought, I've seen the Berlin Wall. It's not coming down any time in our lifetime. Yeah. It's going to be up till Jesus comes. And that was actually what most of us thought, too. That, at that mature. time, it was an immovable fact of history. You weren't going to see the Berlin Wall or Iron Curtain come down in our lifetime. I mean, so when we bow to pray, I can't say that there was much faith in my heart. But the extraordinary thing is that over the next years, and it included when I, I met uh, Lenora, who became my wife, and went on Bible smuggling operations with Bill Baston behind Iron Curtain. And uh, we saw some of these Jericho prayer march people. I mean, the, the people were praying in Eastern Europe. They'd come together with uh, candles, and one would be lit, and they'd share this, and the lights would spread. And the whole principle of the Leipzig prayer meeting was light is more powerful than darkness. Yes. Not all the doctors can put up the smallest candle. Truth is more powerful than lies. God's love is more powerful than communist hate. And so they would come back from these rallies, these prayer meetings, where they're praying for peace and praying for the coming down the Berlin Wall and praying for freedom and so on. They'd come into an unlit house and they'd put the candle lit in the open window with the curtains open and so on. So all down the streets, you could see more and more and more homes oh identifying my. faith and light. It was very powerful. You just see these candles going through town, and, and more and more you could just see there's more people who are resisting communism than we would have dared imagine. <laughs> and this led ultimately to the fall of the Berlin Wall and the overthrow of the communist government from one side of Eastern Europe to the other in 1989. So, so Brother Andrew was not so off the wall after all. Seven years later, down came the Iron Curtain, the Berlin yes. Wall, and Eastern Europe was wide open. And so phenomenal, uh, this movement, uh, as he said, he wasn't starting it. This had already started in Eastern Europe. We in the West were joining what the Christians in Eastern Europe, the underground church, were already doing. So what phenomenal faith. Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's very encouraging to hear all this. And today we're talking with Dr. Peter Hammond, uh, founder and director of Frontline Fellowship, He's sharing with us about his personal knowledge of uh, Brother Andrew, and your wife also knew him, so that's very interesting. You've shared about your father-in-law, Bill Bathman, and um, as you went into these places, and you've been behind enemy lines, uh, did you ever get struck with fear? Yes, oh, definitely. I mean, courage isn't the absence of fear. It's it's persevering in spite of your fear, really, Hmm. Um, but... Yes, I, I think it's so important to remind ourselves that you are immortal until your work on earth is done. That's what Amen. Martin Luther said. Uh, that it's safer to be in a battle in the sense of God's will than in bed outside of God's will. That's right. And um, that's true. Uh, so, yes, no, there have been times of fear. I mean, I've been under fire and I've been imprisoned. And I must say probably the most shocking thing in my life at, up to that date was 1987 at age 27 when I was first captured by communists and put in prison and 
you know, I had, I had the faith to die for Christ and I had the faith even to suffer. Um, I didn't want to be crippled, but I thought I could handle that if I lost a leg mm. or something, I suppose. But um, I certainly wouldn't want that to happen. But the thing I really feared was being captured by the communists. And I remembered over and over a, a picture that I'd seen as a boy uh, in Rhodesia of a, a Rhodesian soldier captured by the Zambians um, in Lusaka back in 1977. So I would have been 17 at the time. And here I was seeing a picture of this man uh, who was um, Taffy uh, Ian Sutherland. He was walking uh, in town barefoot, chained, shackled, um, and with uh, uh, Zambian guards with machine gun beating and prodding him with bayonets and so on. I thought, how could he allow himself to be captured? I would never allow myself to be captured by a <laughs> And 10 years later, 1987, I was in the same situation, barefoot and chained and shackled and being led through the streets of Lusaka. And I was oh. put in the same cell Ian Sutherland had been put in, cell 11, Lusaka Centre. I must say, fear gripped my heart. But, yes. But only for a moment. Um, as I turned to the Lord, I mean, he gave me grace and faith that I never had a moment before then. So God gives you the grace when you need it. Amen. Well, our guest today has been Dr. Peter Hammond. He's been talking about being involved in Bible smuggling and uh, particularly uh, in honor of um, Brother Andrew, who recently passed. And uh, Peter, if someone wishes to get a hold of you, uh, where could they go online? Yes, um, our website is www.frontlinemissionsa.org, frontlinemissionsa.org, and our email, mission at frontline.org.za, or ZA, mission at frontline.org.za. Well, it's always an honor to talk with you, and I want to thank you very much for fitting us into your busy, busy schedule. I know you live in a house there with some of your children still around, and it's a very busy place, so thank you very much for fitting us in. It's a great pleasure. God bless and good night. God bless you. And for Redeemer Broadcasting, I'm Dan Elmendorf. Dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.